Hello, Consumed listeners. Welcome to the 19th season of the podcast about eaters, drinkers, thinkers, and makers across California, and especially at its heart, the Central Coast. For this season, I'm chatting with food and beverage legends, people who have made a significant impact on their industries and the palates of generations to come. I think you're going to love it. But before we begin, I want to tell you about some of the Consumed Podcast sponsors. Casa du Metz is a boutique winery in Los Alamos celebrating its 12th year in this historic one-horse town. Their attention and motivation is captured by creating aromatic fresh wines that defy expectation. With three brands, Casa du Metz, Clementine Carter, and The Feminist Party, their goal is to highlight the beauty and bounty of Santa Barbara wine country. They have a particular sweet spot for Rhone variety wines sourced from cool climate vineyard partners in the Santa Rita Hills. Join them for their popular weekly speaker series, monthly wine club vineyard tours, Malibu sessions, and a unique tasting experience where you choose your own wine adventure. Join the discovery with Casa du Metz and their sister business, Babby's Beer Emporium, next door to explore quirky craft beers and bubbles while enjoying dumplings and spicy wings from Dim Sama. 2023 marks their 19th vintage, and they want to celebrate with you. Visit casadumetz.com for more information. Slow Food Co-op's mission is to empower health and well-being in the community by providing quality groceries, local produce, and exceptional customer service. Slow Food Co-op sources from local producers, ensuring they offer their shoppers great food and household staples. Slow Food Co-op is your friendly neighborhood grocer, maintaining non-GMO standards and a variety of organic selections. You can find Slow's only community-owned grocery store open every day, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. at 2494 Victoria Avenue in San Luis Obispo, California. And check out their website at slowfood.coop. Slow Life magazine is the bi-monthly publication that introduces readers to the people, happenings, and culture of San Luis Obispo. I write the food column for Slow Life, and for the next issue, I'm talking with Sara Garafalo, a consumed alum who teaches Ayurvedic eating with an Italian twist. She just released a cookbook, and I wanted to understand more about how she came up with this special brand of dietary counseling. For locals, you can expect to find the magazine in your mailbox every other month, or if you're a visitor, pick up a copy at Boo Boo Records or subscribe at slowlifemagazine.com. Okay, on to the episode. When you think of wineries that really changed the game in California, Tablas Creek Vineyard should be one of the first to come to mind. A partnership between a wine importer, Robert Haas, and wine growers in the south of France, Jean-Pierre Perrin and Francois Perrin, Tablas Creek has been a pioneering producer of Rhone varietal wines in Paso Robles since it opened in 1989. I spoke with Jason Haas, the second-generation proprietor of Tablas Creek Vineyard, who has continued the work set out by his father and the Peran family to establish Paso Robles as a premier appellation for Rhone varieties and to do so with rigorous attention to sustainability and regenerative agriculture. In these ways, Tablas Creek has been one of the first, if not the very first, to approach winemaking this way in Paso Robles and well ahead of their time. 
Jason and I talk about his beginnings in the tech industry, his affection for Ultimate Frisbee, and the accolades he's won for his writing on the Tobless Creek blog at toblesscreek.typepad.com. Okay, here's Jason Haas of Tobless Creek Vineyard. Jason Haas, thank you for coming to my house. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, I So I I knew about you, I think, originally through the Tobless Creek blog. Uh, which, when did you launch that? <laughs> it started in 07. Which is really early. I mean, for blogging, that's really early. Yeah, it was. I mean, we got to see the whole rise of kind of the wine blog. There was sort of a five-year bubble where yeah. it was a really big deal. But I'm I'm kind of stubborn. Um, oh. And I've realized that one of the real values of the blog, for me at least, is working through the kinds of stuff that I'm thinking about anyway. Yeah. And so... Like there are lots of people who started a blog and wrote it for a while and then just mm-hmm. sort of fell off. And I've found it so so useful personally that I've I've kept it up. So we basically have done a post a week for now wow. more than fifteen years. What a you know what a deep repertoire of material you have. Then that's a lot of content. It's a lot of content, and yeah. we we started this before social media was a thing. Yeah, um, and. It's turned out to be really valuable because it's one of the sources of content that we can mine to to, to share on social media, but also mm-hmm. to share like with our email newsletters and all of that with our customers. But we're we're fortunate in that there's stuff that happens every year that's worth talking about every year. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I don't actually have to come up with 52 new ideas every year. I yeah. mean, I, mean, I want to talk about Verasion every year. I want to talk about Bud Break. We're going to have a series of things that we talk about Harvest. I mean, mm-hmm. there's there's things that happen. And then I try to make sure that once or twice a month, we're actually diving a little deeper into something that we haven't covered before. Mm-hmm. And like that's it, it's been really fun. Well, and and the nature of the product itself is such that it is different every year. I mean, you have plenty to talk about from, from you know, right. even if you're looking back at, this is week 26, and I look back at last year's week 26, it will be different. There will be similarities, but it will be different. So there's always something to say. For sure. And there's a, there's a use also in doing that in a comparative way. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, before we got on the air, we were talking about some of the, some of the quirks of this year, this year being so late. Yeah. And, there are ways of, of of explaining what a year is like by comparing it to what we've seen over the last decade or the last yeah. two decades. And we have the both the data that we've collected like from our weather station and from our own mm-hmm. records of when we're seeing Verasion, when we're picking all of that, that you can use to put a year into context. And that'll help people understand why the wines are the way they are, mm-hmm. why how they're going to be different, likely, compared to what they, they, they got to know the year before. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also it also ends up being kind of a, a running record for us. I would imagine it's useful for you as a company. I mean, I go back, like one of the things that we did this month was do a, a retrospective tasting of one of our wines for our wine club members. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's one of the ways that we work through our library of wines every year is we, mm-hmm. we choose a wine each summer to do a vertical tasting where we basically taste every vintage of that wine that we've mm-hmm. ever made. And then choose highlights of that tasting to share with the public for an event that we do later. Yeah, And a lot of times as I'm getting ready for that public event, 
I'll look at the vintages that we're that we're selecting, and I'll go back and look at my harvest reports on the blog for that vintage because I wanna I wanna understand what it was that made the 07 different from the 10, different from the 15, different yeah. from what we're making now. And you have this spectacular um, log of that, you know, the nuances of it. Whereas, you know, I suppose you could just take down numbers, you know, bricks were this on this day or, you know, all, all the techie stuff, but you have something that is well-written through the lens of a human being. And there's a lot of art actually to your writing. Um, and so you have this very nuanced, full fleshed thing that you can go back and look at. Does Thank that you. feel accurate? Thank you. Yeah. Um, I mean, it is, it's, we all think that our memories are better than they really are. Especially as we get older, yes. I mean, as uh, uh, you finish a harvest, uh, for example, for us, Mm -hmm. and everything that happened in that harvest is carved so clearly in your mind, and you think you will never forget it. And then you realize two years later that you can't remember the details Mm -mm. uh, unless you've taken the time to to write it down and analyze it and put it into context. And and that process is helpful for remembering it, but also it's, it's really important if you want to go back and and, and re-immerse yourself into where your head was at that point. Yeah. Um, you are an excellent writer, and everybody knows that. And I'm curious if you... Did you study writing in any, in any facet? So, sort of. Um, my, my, my educational background is um, eclectic. I was a, a double major in economics and in architectural design as oh my an gosh. undergrad. And then really? ended up getting fascinated through that lens of architecture with how communities developed over time and ended up getting a master's degree in archaeology. Wow. wow. Um, and so I had to do a ton of writing for that. And one of the cool things about the program at Cornell where, where I went to grad school oh, yeah. is that they have a campus-wide writing program where their writing requirement isn't like restricted to the English department. Mm-hmm. They they require that every incoming freshman take two writing-focused classes, and they expect that those classes will be offered in all the different departments. Mm. And one of the cool things that, that, one of the cool opportunities that they had at Cornell was if you as a grad student were interested in designing one of those writing courses, you could do it. Yeah. So I did that each of the years that I was there, mm-hmm. um, taught writing. Oh my um, gosh. And nothing teaches you like, nothing teaches you like teaching others. Oh my gosh. That's so true. Yeah. So I did a ton of writing for that. And then I ended up doing a lot of writing for my first real job, which was, I, I got recruited out of grad school to join a tech company. I'm at the height of the tech, mm. the tech boom in mm-hmm. the late nineties. And I, I joined a company that taught web programming languages. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I ended up doing is is being in charge of the curriculum there. So I ended up writing uh. a lot of the courses and a lot of the workbooks that went with the courses. And that was different sort of writing. That was more technical writing. But sure. But you still have to form thoughts and it's problem solving at its most basic. It is. And I've always I've always found writing to be sort of therapeutic for me. It's yeah. uh and, and I think it I think it has to be. If so if somebody wants to write regularly, if they want to keep up something as simple as a blog, mm-hmm. like you have to want to do it. It has to be something which is useful to you personally. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, uh, it's funny looking back on it. Cause when I started it, I wasn't that aware of what it would become. Mm-hmm. It was actually our French partners, the, the parents, Mark Perrin, um, at one 
the conference we happened to both be at, said, hey, you guys should really think about starting a blog. It'll be great for your search engine rankings. I was like, okay. Well, he was kind of, I mean, he was right. He wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't wrong. wrong. How's that? <laughs> he, he wasn't, wasn't wrong. wrong. Um, <laughs> and they had been, they had done a blog for a couple of years at that point. And I started doing it and realized pretty quickly, like this is valuable for so many reasons beyond yeah. that. Yes. It's, it's good for search engines. Yes. So we have some similarities. I don't think I realized, um, you grew up here, right? No, I grew up in Vermont. Oh, you did? I did. No, I was an East Coast kid. My dad was a wine importer starting in New That's York. right. And then he moved to Vermont. He and my mom moved to Vermont when they were ready to start a family. So that was okay. where his import business was based all while I was growing up, and that was where I grew up. Okay, okay. I moved out here in 02, so I've been here for 20 plus years. But. All right, okay. So I grew up here. I wound up going back east. I went to Vassar, yeah. and I studied um, architecture history which is, you know, if you're talking to somebody who's from Cal Poly where the, it is learned by doing and it's very practical and so often what you study in school is what you wind up doing um, for your vocation, the thought of studying architecture history is a little silly. Um, but I absolutely loved it and it's where I learned how to write. Yeah. Um and so, yeah, you know, I didn't study English necessarily, but Vassar, it was critical that you knew how to write no matter what your major, you could be computer science and you had to know how. So, um, ended up coming out, um, around the same time that it sounds like you did the tech boom. Uh, well, I came during the bust trying to right. get a job. Yeah. Uh, yes, we all, we all went through that. <laughs> yes, we did. Um, but in any case, yes, I find that that writing component also, oh, and so then I also had a blog, my husband and I, I, I fell in love with wine. Um, but I didn't want to work in a restaurant and I couldn't figure out how to dovetail my love of wine with making money. So we, uh, we saved up a bunch of money and we left our jobs to work um, in Italy for six months on farms and in vineyards and then in New Zealand for six months in Blenheim, so Marlboro. And, um, and I worked for a winery and he worked for a brewery and I blogged about it. And that was probably, I think, 2008, 2009. And I did it not because I thought it was going to be valuable to others, but because I thought it would be valuable to myself. Yeah. And the act of writing a blog was the biggest gift to myself and to future Jamie, because I ended up compiling it into a book that I will go back sometimes and read. And I was really thorough, which is a little tedious <laughs> at times. <laughs> but, uh, but I love having it. It is an heirloom. Yeah. And it helped me and it continues to help me understand what I think yep. and what I feel. And so I really feel you on the therapeutic part. Yep, for sure. Um, it's interesting. My mom went to Vassar and we actually just went back no. and looked at it with our now high school junior who loved it. Um, oh so we were just gosh. there like a month ago. It's so pretty. It is so pretty. So pretty, so little. <laughs> so little, especially Cornell. I mean, how many students is that? Cornell's big, uh, 20,000 students yeah. if, you, if you count the grad school. But I was there I, I was there as a graduate student. I didn't choose that for undergrad. Right, right. So I went okay. to Williams for undergrad. So oh, you, oh well, Williams and Vassar are, yeah, they're yeah. buddies. Yep. Okay, so, but I asked you on, I love knowing all of this and learning all of this, but I asked you on um, because I really, and so many people consider Tawas Creek to be a legend of our area. 
And I was trying to kind of mine why I thought that. There are obvious reasons you've, you, you've been around a long time, but also you brought a sensibility of looking outside just Paso to inform the way wine is made here. And, and there's nothing wrong with coming from a just Paso standpoint for making wine, but you brought another family in, you brought another culture in quite literally to help see this place as um, that Paso could hang on an international level with, you know, the greats. So can you tell me a little bit about why, why might I think of Tablas Creek as a legend? And I'm not asking you to, you know, toot your own horn, but why might somebody think that? What were you the first at? Honestly, we were the first at a fair number of different things. I know. Um, but just to, just to go back a little bit in the story, I mean, our, we, our connection to Paso came after the partnership that, that we are owned and run by. Um, and after the idea that we had to do this kind of riff on Chateau Nifty Pop in mm-hmm. California. So, um, the, the, the origin story piece of Tablas Creek is basically from the trips that my dad would make with Jean-Pierre and Francois Perrin, the two brothers who've run the estate there since the seventies, um, to, to sell their French wines in California. And every time they would go to California together, they would come back talking about how much it reminded them of the South of France and mm-hmm. how surprised they were in this Mediterranean climate that they didn't see people focusing on their own varieties that they knew and loved. They saw mm-hmm. lots of people looking to Burgundy and Bordeaux for their models and not the Mediterranean and what they thought was pretty clearly a Mediterranean What climate. year is this roughly? So starting in the mid seventies. Yeah. So it was okay. early. Yeah. Um, of course, at that point, like, they were busy with their other businesses. They couldn't do anything mm-hmm. about it yet. But in 85, they got serious about it and put together the partnership and started looking for land. And even at that point, if you had asked them where they thought they were going to end up, they would have told you Sonoma. Yeah. Um, they For Roan. For Roan. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, Sonoma is terrific for Roan varieties. Yeah. The But Paso wasn't on their radar or really anybody else's at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and... It was looking for the right kind of soils that ended up leading them here. Mm-hmm. So um, there are really three things that we were looking for. We were looking for the right kind of climate, which meant hot enough and sunny enough to mm-hmm. ripen some of the latest ripening grapes in France, but moderated enough so that grapes like Viognier and Syrah that like it cooler were still were still really good. Yeah. Enough rainfall to farm without having to irrigate, at least in the long run. Yeah. Um, and then high calcium soils, basically limestone derivative, old seabed. Mm-hmm. And it turned out there were lots of parts of California where the climate was good. And that maps pretty well on where is having success with Rhone varieties now. Yeah. So you can look at Sonoma, you can look at the Sierra foothills, you can mm-hmm. look at Paso, you can look at like Santa Inez, Northern Santa Barbara mm-hmm. County. And all of those have a climate, which, which is pretty amenable to the full range of Rhone varieties. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of those places didn't have enough rainfall you really need to average 25 inches of rain a year in order to count on dry farming over the long term. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those parts of California were too dry. But where we are in like extreme West Paso, up in those uh, Santa Lucia foothills, we average 26 inches a year. Mm-hmm. So we have enough. Still? Still. Good. I mean, last year we got 50. Well, um, <laughs> I know, but I mean, if we're talking our, averages, you know, rolling right. average. No, they do. They do. It does change. I mean, it's hard to know what is... Yeah. It's hard to know what's normal at this point. Um, we've had eight drought years in the last 11. So God, 
so uh, scary and depressing, but, but moving on. Yes. Anyway, we'll get back to that, I'm sure. But, um, and then the third thing we were looking for was those, those limestone soils. And those are really only found in the Western part of the central coast. So if you take a map of California and you draw these overlays of where you can find climate, soils, rainfall, you end up with this little triangle of land in West Paso and West Templeton. Mm. So we settled on, I, what did I say we? I was in high school. I was not doing this, sure, this decision Sure, but I understand. But yeah. we, we settled on, on this part of California as the right overall fit in terms of raw materials, not because of really anything about the community of Paso, but just because soils, rainfall, climate seemed right. And my dad was always kind of supremely confident in his own ability to figure the rest of the business side of stuff out. If the raw materials were there, the rest was just, Mm -hmm. just like hard work. Yeah. So, um, when we started in 1989, we were the 17th winery in Paso and so there were, there was there were grapes here. There were five thousand acres of grapes on the ground. Yeah, I actually think that that's farther into the uh, that's further. It's greater a number than I would have expected. Actually, I thought that maybe you were like tenth. Yeah. No, I mean there were there were it was wineries. Happening. There were wineries. Yeah, but it was if if you ask people to talk about what Paso wine was, what it meant, you probably would have at that time gotten two answers. You would have gotten people saying, "Oh, it's there, there's these old Zinfandel vineyards yeah. there." And you would have had people saying, oh, I'm starting to see some, like, inexpensive Cabernet. Cab, yeah. So even though Gary Eberly had done some important experiments with Syrah in Paso, Mm -hmm. by that point he had decided that as much as he liked Syrah, Cab was way easier to sell and make. And so Mm -hmm. he pulled out those vines. And so there wasn't really a Rhone nexus at all in Paso. Mm -hmm. So... In bringing in, in settling there, in deciding to bring in the full collection of Rhone varieties from Bocastel, mm-hmm. we knew we were going to be breaking new ground. And not just breaking new ground for Paso, but in California, if you looked at what was available for Rhones at that point, I mean, there was good Syrah, there mm-hmm. was good Viognier. There was, Up north. Well, scattered around. There was also some well, down in also, Santa, yeah, Santa Barbara. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was some Marsan. Mm-hmm. And then there were some old vineyards of Grenache and Morvedra of questionable ancestry and uh, um, provenance. And a lot of the Grenache was Central Valley, mm-hmm. bulk wine designed. I mean, that was the, the key component of like Gallo Hardy Burgundy in that yep, era. Yep, So Crank it, hot, yeah. I mean, yeah, you could get sugar at mm-hmm. uh, 20 tons an acre. And yeah. if you need a color, great, you add something else. You need yep. flavor, great, you add something else. Yeah. So. But but that was sort of it. If you wanted to work with grapes like Cunois or Picpoul or Grenache Blanc, like, not available. They did not exist. Yeah. Um, and so what we decided to do, our first big decision, and I think this is one of the things which, uh, looking back on it, was one of the most important decisions that we made, was rather than live with the vine material that was in California already, we decided to take cuttings of all of the varieties from Bocastel and bring them into the country. Legally? We did. We, oh, you we, did? We okay. did. We went through a three-year wow. USDA-mandated quarantine. The vine spent three years in upstate New York, um, actually being watched by Cornell, Cornell scientists. Yeah, yeah. Somebody um, taking good care of them. Somebody taking good care of them and testing them for viruses. That was yeah. basically what the, what the government's three interest years, was in this. Though. And you're only allowed to bring in six cuttings of each type. So yeah. at the end of three years, you get six 
cuttings out of it. And then you then need to propagate those into enough to start grafting and eventually planting just, your just, vineyard. Just time, the amount of time, this is wine, you know, always. It's the amount of time that it takes and patience for everything. And five years. I mean, it yeah. was basically a five-year hit for us because um, between the 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 quarantine and the propagation, like we didn't have any grapevines on the ground until 1994. Sure. Oh my gosh. And then three years to get your first crop. We had first crop was 97. Then you have grapes. Like then you actually have to make the wine. And yeah. Sell it and all that. So I, I think one of the one of the really important contributions that we've been able to have is bringing in that full collection of our own varieties, including new high quality clones of the mm-hmm. things that were already here, and then deciding not to keep them proprietary, but instead to make them available to anybody who wanted to buy and plant Mm -hmm. them. So I think we were known for our grapevine nursery before we were known for our wines. Mm. And that was a, that was a decision that like, I I think at the time, a lot of people questioned that like, why were we taking what would have been a competitive advantage and then just sort of giving it away to everybody who wanted it. Mm. But my dad and the parents in their analysis, they felt like the biggest thing that was holding back the category of Rhone varieties in California is that the genetic material of the grapevines just wasn't that good. Yeah, yeah. And they never really worried about our ability to stay at the front of that category. But Mm. if the category could carve out a bigger piece of the pie, then that would help all of us. Hmm. So as soon as we had any extra vines beyond what we needed to plant our own vineyard, we started making them available to sell. So that started in 1996. Mm -hmm. And... Over the last 25 plus years, we've sold something like 5 million grapevine cuttings to 600 vineyards from Washington State to Virginia, um, including 100 just in Paso. I do not. I will tell you, when I think about the pioneering nature of Tablas Creek, I don't, that is not the first thing that comes to mind is the the nursery. I I think of your brand, your presence, the international nature of what, what you do. I but maybe because I'm not industry, I don't think of the grapevine uh, nursery, and I think that that's so generous. Really, I mean, I know you're making money off of this. You're you're it's a it's a transactional thing, but the fact that you were thinking about the region and how th- that could support you, but in a more generous way, it's pretty um, it's pretty progressive, really. I spend a lot of time thinking about that, and it's not true just in the question of grapevines. It's also true in the question of promoting your region or your category. Yes. It's true in um, sharing the way that you farm or the way that you make wine. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because wine is ultimately, it's not a zero-sum product. It's Mm -hmm. not like somebody who buys a bottle of Syrah from somebody in Santa Inez is less likely to be a bo- buy a bottle of our wines. They're yes, more likely. that's very true. Yes. It's not like somebody who buys a bottle of a Paso Cabernet is less likely to buy a bottle of ours. Also They're more true. likely. Yes. And it's not like, it's not as though somebody who buys a, buys a bottle of somebody who's farming biodynamically from another part of mm-hmm. California is less likely to buy a bottle of Tablas Creek. They're or more hell, to- honestly, somebody who buys a six pack from Barrel House, you know, there is, the, and that's beer for whoever's listening. <laughs> um, but I think that there is a real interest in, if you're interested in flavor, then you are interested in all of it. It is not exclusionary. It's not to the exclusion of any one yep. product. Yeah. And, and also a, a community that is vibrant is bringing new people into into that community's world. So mm-hmm. 
helping Paso be successful, helping Roan producers be successful, helping basically anybody who we share a we share a category with. Mm-hmm. Like that, in the long run, that's something that's going to help us. Yeah. So, um, back to the question that you asked that I took a really long and and uh, circuitous way to answer. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that the fact that these two families that my dad with his 50 years of importing experience and the parents with their five generations of making some of the great wines in, mm. in the South of France, the fact that they would look all over California and choose Paso yeah. was a really important moment for the region. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that just the fact of them having done that helped give Paso a real boost mm-hmm. because I mean, they were known internationally in a way that yeah. in a way that most of the producers in Paso at that time weren't yet. Mm-hmm. And knowing the process that we went through to, to look at soils, to look at rainfall, to look at climate and that look after looking in Napa, after looking in Sonoma, after looking at places that are much were at that time much better known and much more established that we chose Paso mm-hmm. was in and of itself a validation. Now there's that story. But then there's the other side of it, which is the gamble that it must have been, (laughs) right? I mean, we can talk all we want from this vantage point, you know, hindsight, that it was so positive for the community. Okay, but on the other side of it, to come out of nowhere, to base it simply on metrics like soil type and, you know, climate, all of that is a massive gamble, Um, can you talk to that at all? Yeah, the, the reaction that my dad said, that he got from everybody who he told in that era was just kind of like bafflement. Like, okay, fine. But you realize you're going to make your lives way more difficult. Yeah. And I I think some of that challenge appealed to him just to to his nature. He had been successful in doing all the other things he'd done on the Mm. retail level, on the wholesale level, on the import level. Um, Some of it was just his inherent confidence and his ability to figure it out. Um, and some of it was that he he believed that ultimately the the, the qualities that brought them there would shine through in the wines, and that would mm-hmm. make that would make the case for why we made that choice. But yeah, at the time it was it was it was it was a choice. And bringing a partner in as well, um, although I mean I know that they could stand on their own two feet in terms of assessing a place for, for, um, viability with wine, but partnerships are tricky. And, uh, I think it also is a testament to the brand that this family partnership has gone so well and stood the test of time that speaks volumes. I think personally as a consumer that says a lot for, um, I don't know. That's just remarkable. Well, it started with with a friendship rather than yeah. starting with a like a business agreement to yeah. do something. And scratch I, I my that, back, I'll scratch yours. That kind of thing. I, yeah, I mean, and it was. I mean, my my dad was close to Jacques Perrin, who was Jean Pierre Francois's father. Um, he was the one who first represented those Bocastel wines in the yeah. United States in the 1960s. Um, he made multiple trips every year with Jean-Pierre and Francois. And it was the fact that they became really friendly. Yeah. I spent, I made my first visit to Bocastel when I was five months old. Oh, um, you did? Oh my gosh. There's a great picture of me sitting on Jacques Perrin's lap, this like fat wow. little five-month-old baby. Um, but, and then like their kids came and did 
did summers with us. Mm-hmm. Um, the like the families were friendly as families, mm-hmm. and so one of the motivations that my dad had in 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 doing this project was it was a way for the families to continue to work together down mm-hmm. the generations in a in a relationship that was kind of more durable than just an importer producer relationship. It's very sweet though. I mean, and I mean that in, not in an like infantilizing way, but it's really sweet that, that he thought generationally, first of all, um, so many of us don't, um, but that's beautiful. And now that, you know, the friendships through the generations have this shared interest in Paso is really quite something. I have a, I have a generational story for you. Please. Um, so not long after I had moved out there, um, and my dad was in his mid seventies at this point. So, um, that's a, I, I think if that's not a definition of optimism, I don't know what is starting a, <laughs> starting a project that's not going to make any wine for a decade and not going to oh be ultimately gosh. what you hope it is for two decades when you're in your mid sixties. Like, it is optimism. It could be also said if it didn't go well, we could call it something else, but, <laughs> but yes. But, but so I moved out in O two, And so this was probably, I don't know, Oh four maybe. Um, and we were walking out into the middle of the vineyard and we had a, a new block that we had planted recently and he sort of was standing there looking at it thoughtfully. And he said, you know, like I didn't, I didn't really do this for me. I'm not going to be around when all of this is at its peak. Hmm. And honestly, like I wasn't really, even really thinking of you, but this is going to be amazing for your kids. Mm-hmm. Like, so he was thinking multiple yeah. generations forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and the parents are a great example for us. They're on their fifth generation. Now they right. have, they have sixth generation who's like in college at this point. Isn't that were, incredible? And it's such a, I mean, they're such a dynamic and interesting family. They're so smart, so involved in so many different things. And they have, they put together this system where they require that kids go out and do something else, not connected with a family business. Love it. Um, and then come back and essentially justify in front of the rest of their family what they're going to bring to the table that's not already there. Is there, but there is an expectation that there would be wine, that they would come to the family business? All of them have so far. Well, Um, all right. So I I don't think that there is an expectation in the sense that if somebody wanted to go and do something different, that there would be, that they would be like cast out. Yeah, yeah. Um, But they, they have found ways of, continuing to build the projects that they're involved in. So there's mm-hmm. enough for now, cause there's now, so there's seven parents in my generation. So this is wow. now supporting nine families. Yeah. And then they all have those seven in my generation have probably 18 kids among them. So they're, they're my looking goodness. at the future as how they, how they create a family business that can not just survive the decades, but that can thrive enough to, Support. create room for and support mm-hmm. um, this this kind of growing number each generation. So you brought to it, perhaps you weren't subject to the same test, but you bring to the business, or you did, was it the economics and the um, business savvy? So, yes. So, so basically... It wasn't nearly as formalized at yeah. that point for, for me, but I didn't want to go straight into a family business right out of school. I didn't mm-hmm. feel like I would have brought enough. I, mean, I didn't have enough 
confidence in my own life experience and my own yeah. decisions. So going and working in tech for those, those four years that I did, I, I joined this little tech startup. I was the seventh employee. And mm -hmm. by the time I left, almost four years later, we'd grown and had 80 employees and offices in six cities. And I'd gotten a chance to manage people and manage projects and write and teach and market. Based out of the Bay Area, I'm guessing? No, based know. in D.C. Oh, okay. Um, that was an era where every... It could be anywhere. It could be anywhere. Yeah, but also right. every government agency, every nonprofit, all of them were basically being told, you got to get your content online. Yeah. None of them had the expertise in-house. And so this company was founded essentially to offer classes to train mm -hmm. all of these people so that they needed to do it. So we had private sector customers, but we also had a lot of government and nonprofit yeah. stuff. So anyway, but my, one of the things I ended up getting to do a ton of in that business was marketing. Mm -hmm. And so when I, in, in 2002, it was actually 2001, that was the point where I left that company and had decided that I was ready to come out here, be a part of what mm -hmm. was going on out here. And also realized that the business was having a harder time than we had originally hoped it would. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that was because of all of the things that I'm sure were obvious to you as you were just thinking mm -hmm. about this as we were choosing to start Paso Robles. Mm -hmm. But we were making blends that didn't have a category yet in the marketplace yeah. <laughs> out of grapes, out of grapes that people didn't know and couldn't pronounce yeah. from a part of California they'd never heard of mm. with French names that didn't mean anything to them. So that was like four strikes against us yeah. at the beginning. And I, I would go out for that, that first year. So after I left the tech company, but before I moved out here, I spent a year going around and working with our distributor partners on the East coast and, mm trying to go out and show the wines and just listen to what the market was saying about Tablas Creek, which was mostly nothing. <laughs> which was almost nothing. Yeah. And we would go to these wine shops and talk to the, the owners and tell the story. And they'd be like, yeah, I love the story. The wines are delicious. Come over here. I'm going to show you the 10 bottles I still have of the case that I bought last year. Oh. So I realized when, when I moved out that our biggest challenge was that people, there, was, there wasn't the pull through on the, on the customer level, mm -hmm. there was pretty good knowledge about what we were doing within the, within the trade, mm -hmm. but we had essentially ignored the whole customer marketing side of what yeah. we had to do. So you had a lot of respect from your peers, but you still weren't selling wine. Right. And it wasn't a problem when we were only making like 4,000 cases of wine a year. I mean, mm -hmm. you, you allocate that out in the distribution network that my dad had developed through his import company Yes, and like whatever the state of North Carolina gets 14 cases. Like yeah. that's not that hard to sell, yeah. but the, we had planted 60 acres of vineyard in the first couple of years. And in 2002, the year that I moved out there, we made 12,000 cases of wine and mm -hmm. sold 4,000 cases of wine. Yeah. You don't sell the wine the same year you make it, but the writing is on the wall that you better figure this out. Yeah. And so those first few years, I mean, we were bleeding money. We were mm. trying whatever we could think of. I mean, we were we, we opened a tasting room. We never had a tasting room before. Yeah. We started our wine club. We started going out and, and participating in festivals and events. We started going out and working with our distributors in a much more conscious way. We mm -hmm. started reaching out to the, the, the wine writing community, inviting them to come out and see what we were doing. And mm -hmm. just like anything that we could think of that might might touch the... The, the the consumer side of things. Move the needle, yeah. 
Um, and over the next three years, kind of gradually like clawed ourselves back to even to where we were making and selling like 18,000 cases of wine a year. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were still several years after that where we had back inventory that we were trying to figure out what to do with and, and how to make it work. But it was basically like when, when I moved out, my dad said, okay, I'm going to make you director of marketing. Mm. Um, ultimately, you'll be in charge of operations. But like for now, that's what we really need. Yeah. And that was where I spent like 90% of my effort in the early years. Yeah. I have been one of the wine writers invited out to your property. And, uh, you know, after you'd become very established, I think the reason I was invited out was to see all of the measures towards sustainability that you have enacted. And the, the interesting thing is I'm hearing you talk about the Paran family and, and your dad looking at Paso for its ability to be dry farmed. You know, you say that now and it's very, um, it's seen as like a forward thinking measure, but the truth is it's a very looking back kind of measure. I mean, so much of what we've come to now in terms of good best practices are super old practices. Absolutely. And in Europe, I think a lot of people don't realize you cannot be assessed for government inclusion, high level inclusion, unless you are dry farmed. It is a, it's not a, it's not like a cute thing on your resume. This is a point of entry for having your wine be recognized at a level that consumers will respect a lot of the time. I mean, I, I'm overstating that, but, um, not by much, honestly. I mean, it's, well, I'm thinking of like super Tuscans and there, there's a whole area of outside of AOC, DOCG, um, levels where there is a level of respect for kind of outliers, but outliers are generally not accepted or seen at the very least seen. And, and most the of the most of the high quality appellations in France they prohibit irrigation. It's, I mean, yes. they, you just can't you lose your appellation status. Yes, which is a very big deal there. We don't have that here, so it's not. It, it's kind of a it's a difficult. It's hard to land that concept right. with American consumers. And our the reason why we wanted to dry farm it was not out of this uh, this idea of conservation at all. It yeah. was that we felt like dry farming. And organic farming, which we did from the from the outset, also, those were two essential ways. If we wanted to show off the character of our place, yes, those were measures that we needed to mm-hmm. needed to do. So, um, we've come to think about them in a much uh, in a much larger context, I think, than when we started. In the beginning, it was just, well, this is the way that it's done in Chateau Nifty Pop, and there's yeah. good reasons because that allows you to show off your terroir. Yeah, but. Obviously, as we've become so much more conscious of things like resource scarcity, climate Which is change, so real resource drought. scarcity, water. Oh my God! Yeah, it's really it's really critical now. Yeah, at this point, it's like it's no longer something that is a, oh like that would be nice to do. Isn't it's, that nice? And that's honestly one of the big things that led us to the regenerative organic certification that we have now. Mm-hmm. Which is another one of those things that we were the first stuff to have. Yes, I know. So, but that was a protocol that for us kind of brought together all of the things that we really admired about organic and about Mm -hmm. biodynamic and about the sustainability programs and all put it together into something that had a conscious focus on things like resource scarcity and climate Mm -hmm. change inequality. So that for us, all of a sudden, all of the blind spots that these other 
certifications had, like they all were, they were all integrated now into, it's of a piece. into a single protocol yeah. that is super science-based mm-hmm. that is very conscious of things that are the, the current problems in the world. Mm-hmm. Unlike say biodynamics, which was written 150 years ago before yeah. anybody was talking about climate change or, or even right. really resource scarcity. And that feels to us like a great way of measuring really all of our key decisions is, mm-hmm. is, is it something which is consistent with this broader focus on how you make grape growing and winemaking a part of the solution to these big picture challenges we know we're facing, mm-hmm. not just not a part of the problem. Yeah. So maybe describe for the average listener who's never been to the property, what are those, me- when you talk about the regenerative farming being one whole to which other things are a piece like organic or, or biodynamic, the regenerative farming, give me a, a description of how that works. Maybe even just like a through line for you have chickens and what does that do for everything? Right. So those are fun. Those cycles are fun. They are absolutely fun. (laughs) Um, So I I think the right way to start is to, to just talk about it, how it, how it's different from something like organics. Mm -hmm. So organic is, is a great and powerful thing because of its simplicity. It's basically a list of things you cannot use. You basically can't use synthetic chemicals to do weed control, pest control, or fertilization. Mm-hmm. In practical terms, that has often meant replacing chemical inputs with non-chemical inputs. It's still about bringing inputs in. Bringing You're bringing in fertilizer, just organic fertilizer instead yeah. of petrochemical fertilizer. You're not spraying with a systemic pesticide, but you're probably spraying with oils or soaps or something that still knocks down your insect populations. Um, It also has some blind spots in that it doesn't talk at all about your your use of resources or how you treat your people. So you could be flood irrigating a water-intensive crop in a desert climate and mistreating your workers. And as long as you aren't using chemicals, you can be organic. Hey, organic. Um, But I think we would... I think most people would agree that that's not a great use of societal mm-hmm. resources or something that you really want to be want to be rewarding. Yeah, it doesn't include those things. Yeah. So, biodynamics in a lot of ways is 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 a more complete look at what good farming is because it's it's concerned specifically with the creation of an ecosystem which is in balance and therefore doesn't need you to intervene with fertilizer or with pesticides or mm-hmm. with herbicides. But it's sort of unavoidably tied up with this kind of mystical cycles of the moon, mm-hmm. um, cosmic energies mm-hmm. piece. And if you read the biodynamic literature, like if you get a couple, more than a couple of pages in without starting to roll your eyes, like you're a stronger Steiner. person than I am. Yes. I remember trying to read it thinking I was going to be so knowledgeable on it. And it was, it's a, it's a snoozer. It's crazy. And it's crazy. Like and it's, it's crazy. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. It, it, and the thing is that over the over the generations, uh, it's developed into a system of farming that works. Yes. But I think in a lot of cases it works, but not for the reasons that the literature says it's supposed to work. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and it has it too has some of those blind spots in terms of like resource use. There's a lot of biodynamic farms that are incredibly heavy users of water. Mm-hmm. Um, so what regenerative organics 
does, and it's relatively new. It was just created the the organization to oversee it was just created in 2017. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were a part of the pilot program, and we got the first round of certifications in 2020. So we're like we're talking just a few yes. years old. But the idea was that it it took the soil health and biodiversity pieces of biodynamics, the focus on so fungal activity, mycorrhizal activity, the networks that go on under the ground, Mm. tied that into a lot of new science that's really just been developed over the last couple of decades that shows how that translates into things like organic matter in the soil and the availability of nutrients, water holding capacity, Mm -hmm. all of that kind of stuff. So it basically added the scientific basis to a lot of the stuff that works in biodynamics. And then added to that requirements that you... um, Reduce your use of shared resources like groundwater and non-renewable energy. Mm -hmm. And then finally, it added pillars for animal welfare. You have to have Mm -hmm. an animal welfare certification if you have working animals on your farm, like Mm -hmm. our flock of 200 sheep. I love it. I Um, love it. And then there's a farm worker fairness piece that you have to show that you are paying your farm workers a living wage, that you are investing in their skills, not just their job skills, but also in more generally applicable skills like communication, conflict resolution, that Mm. you have trained your workers on their rights as farm workers. It's like Mm. all of the stuff that you would want want to know that a company is doing to know that their people can be a part of yeah. a part of the solution. So um, the idea behind this actually came from outside the wine industry. It was it was created largely by Patagonia, the, the clothing company who wanted uh, an independent organization that could certify that their supply chain was farming in a way that was consistent with For their sure. company values. Yeah. So they worked with Dr. Bronner's and mm-hmm. the Rodale Institute and Horizon mm-hmm. to create this system that wasn't tied to a specific crop, but had these same overarching principles and then invited, I think there were 13 farms that were part of the pilot program in different sectors. So there was row crops, there was orchards, there was aquaculture, there was chocolate, there was wine, Mm -hmm. there was livestock. Love it. Were you the only winery? We were. That is so Um, cool. And they weren't, they were looking for a partner in each of those different spheres who, they could, who, who are already doing most of the right stuff. Yeah, but a beta, a beta test. Who could give them feedback on yeah. how those overall principles and the protocols that they had would be best applied to that particular sector. That's smart, yeah. So, so yeah, so we got a call out of the blue in 2018 asking if we, we wanted to be a part of the pilot program for this new regenerative organic certified program. And mm. after we figured out what regenerative organic meant, um, <laughs> we we realized that it, it did sort of check all of the boxes that we were looking for in a, mm-hmm. in a system that we felt would be meaningful, would be rigorous, and would be something that could be adopted more broadly and move, mm-hmm. move farming as a whole in a direction that would be positive. Well, I, I think one reason Tablas Creek has, first of all, stood the test of time and, and grown, and, but has not become a dinosaur, let's say. Um, you know, because California wine now is at a point where... I mean, do you consider like maybe early mid seventies is sort of the genesis of the new California winery? Not, I'm not talking about like mission era, but am I right in saying that like 73 is kind of when the first rumblings of a, a new wine industry here? I think you could go back into the sixties, look you at what, like what Mandavi was doing, okay, but okay. like in the central coast. Yeah. yeah I mean, okay. you're talking, you're talking later than that. You're talking seventies. for So sure. there are a lot of brands 
who, as an observer, I've seen, you know, they did their thing. They were good at it. They continue to do their thing, but not much else. And I think that the reason, and I hate to call them dinosaurs, but just for want of a better term. So Tavlis Creek, though, has pushed, pushed, pushed always forward. There's always a new story there, not because I get the sense that you all want a new story to share with the world, but because you actually believe in what you're doing, you know, going from organic to biodynamic to this new regenerative organ, organic, you push forward, push forward. There's always something new going on. Um, and that keeps the wine, the product itself, interesting and fresh. Uh, thanks, and I yeah. hope that's true. No, I think um, that that is generally true. And one of the the nice things is that we have continued to have things that we feel like we're pushing towards. Mm-hmm. So one of those things is that we've wanted to complete the whole collection of Chateau Neuf du Pop varieties. Yeah. So we didn't get the last of those in the in the vineyard until 2019. This mm. year, we're finally hoping to make it. Which an, was that? Muscardin was the last. Oh, a little Muscardin. Okay. Um, and we're we're hoping to finally be able to like maybe make two barrels of that this year nice. and maybe even bottle it on its own. Is so, it the 13th? Yeah, uh, the numbers are numbers know, are squishy. <laughs> so it's it's our 16th Rhone variety. Okay. Okay. And. Of those 14 are Chateauneuf varieties, and the, the classic number is 13, like you said. Okay. But they don't count Grenache Noir and Grenache Blanc separately. Oh. So they just count Grenache. Oh, okay. So there really should be 14. Yeah. And then there are some other color variants that are not in the vineyards of Beaucastel that you can find in Chateauneuf Dupop, things like Claret Rose and mm. Picpoul Gris and things that maybe someday we'll all experiment with those babies. too. All Yes, but, I just love it. But we wanted to have all of the 14 that are in the Bocastel Vineyard, plus Viognier and Marsan that are in the part of their part of the vineyard, the part of their vineyard, which is in Cote du Rhone and not Chateau Neuf du Pop. So that's mm. how we get to 16. Okay, okay. Um, so there's new grapes and sort of advocating for those grapes and yeah. giving them a chance to shine. There's the work that we're doing with other vineyards that have our vine cuttings in the ground. Mm-hmm. We're, we're launching a new tier of wines this year called Ligne de Tablas, which is basically single vineyard wines from vineyards around California planted oh. to Tablas clones. So very cool. So that's, that's exciting. Yeah. Um, all and, produced in your facility. Yep. Okay. Yeah. We work with the work with the vineyards to bring the grapes back and make mm-hmm. the wines. Make cool. the wines at our place. Started with two of them in 2022 vintage, and we have three new ones coming online in 23. Nice. Um, and then the the farming piece is an area where we see a huge amount of reason and and just impetus to to innovate because again, as we've as our own understanding of what really matters. I mean, that's what took us from organic to biodynamic yeah. to now regenerative organic. A little more info every time, yeah. Um, and then the last piece where I think you're going to see a lot of innovation going forward is in things like packaging and hmm. and use of resources. So we did a, I did a, a self-audit two years ago based on the Wine Institute's metrics for our own greenhouse gas footprint. And then mm-hmm. we commissioned a formal one <clears throat> last year that we got the results of early this year. And so that highlights that, for example, packaging accounts for half of the carbon Total footprint drain. Of, yeah. of our winery. So that means that we've been pushing into things like, um, we're, we're now pouring the vast majority of our samples in our tasting room out of reusable stainless steel kegs. Cool. So we don't have to 
do the ten thousand bottles a year that we were opening every year just to hold wine that never leaves the building. Exactly, those bottles. People, I don't think a lot of consumers realize how expensive and how heavy those bottles are in terms of. You think about all the shipping that happens. I mean, it's a massive, massive drain. Yeah. Um, and we did, that was why last year we released um, our series of Patalan wines in the three liter boxes, Yeah, um, which we just did the the newest one, did the Patalan Blanc and basically sold it out in three days. I was going to say, how did it do? It's, it's a, great, so people are cool. Okay. Yeah. People are excited about it. Because again, like we're able, we have contact with our customers and we're able to explain why we're doing these things and yeah. why they should pay attention, maybe give wine in a box another look. It's not, yeah. the, it's not the boxes fault that the wines in general that have gone into the boxes have been have been mass produced stuff. (laughs) Yeah. So on that like packaging and energy use piece, there's a, there's a huge amount of, of progress to be made. Mm. So, I mean, we're, we're fortunate that we have a a team in place who is kind of relentlessly experimental. Mm. Um, Neil Collins, who's been our, our our winemaker forever since the very beginning. Like he is somebody who is, he's tinkering with stuff every year, every year there's things he's doing in the vineyard and in the cellar that isn't inconsistent with what we've done before, but is, is, is a new outgrowth of it in a way that might make sense. And if so, then we're going to explore that, expand that across different things. Mm. Um, And I hope that that's one of my, I know that I feel like that's one of my roles and I hope I'm successful in doing it in encouraging our people in all of our different departments to be looking critically at the things that they're doing and, and trying new stuff every year. Cause yeah. if, if we're not, then yeah, I mean, we're going to get static and, and I feel like in the long run, what we make and, and how we connect with our customers will suffer. Yeah. I haven't even talked to you about, here we are at 53 minutes. I swore to you, I'd only take 45. But if you have a little extra time, could you talk about, I mean, industry-wide, locally, region, Tablas Creek has had a huge influence. And one of the biggest things that you've done is push for these distinct sub-Appalachian districts in Paso, which was, I believe, the largest AVA in the U.S., am I right about that? It was that? the largest unsubdivided yes. AVA in California. There, okay, there's in some California. big ones in like the Midwest that are enormous, but okay, but right. yeah, in California, it was the largest one without subdivisions. Yeah. What was the first inkling that you needed to do something about that? So, it's a very, it's 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 absolutely consistent with what you would see in Europe where Mm -hmm. like you look at Burgundy. Yes. There's things that tie Burgundy together, but then there are good reasons to be subdividing that into smaller pieces. So it's sort of in our, in our kind of mindset to to start with, but it was actually uh, another winery that proposed what was at that point going to be called the Paso Robles West side Mm -hmm. AVA. And, our belief that that would have a whole a whole bunch of negative impacts on the Paso Robles region if that went through. Because as it was drawn, it included the hottest and the coolest part of Paso, the highest and the lowest part of Paso. Really? A whole bunch of... It was basically just the river. And like the river is not a significant wow. viticultural dividing line. Mm. And we felt like mm. it would fracture the Paso Robles community, which had been so strong and, and, and unified and valuable that it would, that it was basically just a marketing ploy Hmm. that it wouldn't actually have any meaningful help. 
meaningful um, description mm-hmm. on what the wines are like. Um, and so when we when we got wind of this proposal, um, my dad reached out to a handful of other influential Paso wineries and said, okay, like I'm, we're sure you've you've seen this. What's the right approach? And they they ended up deciding that it was going to be really hard to argue against this other proposal without an the alternative. Change. Okay, yes. Uh-huh. And so what they decided to do is is kind of marshal the whole community together and they ended up getting 60 something growers and winemakers all to put in money, all to agree to to bring in scientists from wow. UC Davis and Cal Poly to look at the geology, look at the climate. Hmm. And then to go with their recommendations that we were, everyone is going to kind of put their own egos aside. Mm-hmm. And if the scientists said the line should be here and there are seven Appalachians, then great. We'd put the lines there and there'd be seven Appalachians. Mm-hmm. Uh, we thought that there were nine, like at the beginning of the discussions and mm-hmm. we got the scientists in and they were like, no, there's 11. Yeah. Um, and it's a, it was a, a really kind of massive undertaking to do. Yeah. It was the largest and most complicated proposal that the TTB had ever received mm-hmm. at that point. And it threw the whole system into tilt. They basically, uh, they basically said, we're not like, this is, this is, this raises too many fundamental questions about what we should and shouldn't be doing. And they, mm-hmm. they basically stopped consideration of any new AVAs for, I think four years. Because of the, the poll or because of what you were asking them to do because what we were asking them was complicated mm-hmm. because they then were faced with two separate proposals because the other group did go ahead and submit their oh they did their oh okay their AVA um and they decided they had they were coming off of and this is very like esoteric mm-hmm. um wine uh, regulation history, but they were coming off of a kind of a bruising battle up in Napa where a winery that had the name of a sub AVA that was proposed was getting grapes from outside that sub AVA. And they ended up having to make the ruling that this, this winery had only a few years to start sourcing from within their AVA. But it was a, the, the TTB and I think in general government bureaucracies, they don't like conflict. Yeah. They don't like being in the middle of an industry dispute. Mm-hmm. And so they they were they were faced with this big question of what the right way was to divide up an appellation um, and ended up going back to the the very beginning of the principles of what their project was and having to first of all reiterate that a nested AVA, an AVA that was inside another AVA that like that that made sense to them. Because their first proposal was that they were just going to do away with all nested AVAs, that you could use a sub-AVA, but you would lose the ability to use the larger AVA. Wow. And it required, like, sending them documentation of the way that it was done in Europe. And yeah. So, Making a case. So this really broke the mold on how the TTB does AVAs. It does. And because, in general, AVAs had been done smaller, like, one at a time. Yeah. And it would be... A winery or two or three that I'm would, thinking York Mountain. You know, that's a great example of that. Right. That had been there forever. Yeah. But like, I mean, you think of like Calistoga or sure, you think okay. of, um, think of, or even like Russian River. Like there's, yeah. there was a winery or two that got the money together to hire some scientists and write a proposal and that was sent in. And if it seemed like there was typicity for that one mm-hmm. sub-AVA, then it would get approved. Yeah. As long as nobody objected. Yeah. Um, 
But this was something where the community got together and said, we're going to try to draw the lines in the right place, even though there's going to be some of those sub-AVAs that don't even have wineries in them yet. Interesting. And, yeah. And so that was, I think, hard for people to wrap their heads around at first, that like, why are you creating a San Juan Creek AVA where there isn't a single winery out there? Well, the reason that we're doing that is that it's viticulturally distinctive and there's vineyards there. Mm. And in the long run, if we want to do this in a, in an honest and scientific way, like it doesn't really matter that there's not a winery there yet. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not about stakeholders only, and it's not about vested interests. It's about the place. That was, that was our decision as, Mm -hmm. as a group. And that's the way that it's supposed to work. Mm. But in, in like practical terms, often it is, a stakeholder within a, a region who is trying to elevate that region that they're in out of the more general, yeah. larger appellation. Yeah. And we, we decided that it was better for us as a community to do this together and to try to do it once and to try to do it right rather than have them get kind of broken off piecemeal as you had yeah. a couple of wineries and some money to, to put a petition together. Has it... Well, so was that like 2017-ish? No, that 16? was, so So that was, I think the proposal went in in 2007. But when and was it And then it was approved in 2012, I think. Oh, okay, okay. So it's been a decade, more Yeah, or less. okay. So how, how has that unfurled? Has any of it surprised you now, 10 years later? How that has um, played out? I don't know the extent to which it surprised me. I think has it had an effect? Have you seen it have an effect? I think it's had an effect, but it's been a relatively small effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I think there there were already wineries talking about things like the Templeton Gap, yeah. talking about the Adelaide area, mm-hmm. and what it did is it just gave you something that so that at least everybody was was referring to the same yeah. borders and the same definitions. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually my this is this ties in very neatly with what I'm planning to write about this week for our blog is I'm mm. actually going to go back and look at things like the what's in the TTB's label approval database and see how many labels have been approved that have the sub AVAs of the different ones oh, cool, on it because yeah. there's there's a lot of wineries who are just choosing to stay with Passarobles you don't yep. have to use the sub AVA mm-hmm. but it seems like the ones that have gotten the most traction so far have been the ones that people were already somewhat aware of like Adelaida mm-hmm. Willow Creek and Templeton Gap. Mm-hmm. Um, there are others that I really expect will be valuable in the in the the fairly short term. Something like El Pomar, yeah. which is some of the greatest grape growing yes. area in Paso Robles, but is on the east side of the river, and so is sort of lumped in with warmer, sandier regions yeah. that as sort of like east side. Yeah. Um, I feel like that's a region that that's a sub-AVA that has real potential to mm-hmm. distinguish itself. Um, but I don't, like, I, I don't know, actually. I'm, I'm looking forward to this research to, yeah. to find out where we are. But um, I think what, I think the, the fact that Paso has been able to keep its Paso Robles, like the Paso Robles brand mm-hmm. primary, wa- it, it wasn't a sure thing. Um, but it's, it's actually been a really good thing Yes, because it has meant that the community continues to work together and whether you are in Adelaide like we are, whether you're in 
the Estrella district, whether you're in the Templeton Gap, like all of those wineries are still a part of the Paso Robles Wine Country Alliance. Yeah. We can do <laughs> seminars for trade and consumers on what the different sub-appellations mean, and it helps them wrap their head around the incredible diversity that there is within Paso yeah. without it feeling like it's become balkanized. Yeah, balkanized. That's a great term for it. Yeah. This is our spot. That's your spot. Yeah. Well, I think it's ultimately so positive. And when I ask, you know, have you seen an effect? I really just say that out of curiosity. I know it wasn't done to have an effect. It was more done. Well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds to me like it was just a mapping exercise in many ways of like, what is this place we call Paso Robles? Yeah, I mean, it, it was done to have an effect, but have a long-term effect. Okay. It wasn't designed to have a short-term marketing effect. Yeah. yeah. It was designed to forestall something that we thought would have a negative effect. Okay. Um, but our our we, we knew going into it that it would be decades before the sub-AVAs all made names for themselves. Yes, yeah. And the, the idea that you put the lines in the right places and if there is enough distinctiveness and there is an advocate within that that sub AVA to make a name for that sub AVA that it will happen mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. that you're not forcing it you're just yes. setting the conditions so that if there is enough distinctiveness and if there is the right mm-hmm. the right voices that, that that recognition will come i like that i like that and it's in keeping with paso is so unique in that way there really is um there is a, a camaraderie. I don't know. Is that the term? Or there's a cooperativeness there. For sure. Yeah. There's a there's an amazing community. There. Yeah. Yes. Um, and P.S. God, we walked around Paso recently. That community is just lighting up more and more all the time. Um, we when we like to go out to eat, we go there. You know, we live in slow, but we go there. It's just so phenomenal. Something interesting, new, surprising around every corner. Um, so, yeah, I really, I think all of us credit the wine industry with having made that possible, you know, fertile ground for that. Oh, for sure. I mean, you think of what it was like 30 years ago. It yeah. was this sort of dusty, yeah. uh, declining ranching town Yeah. Um, with... 50% vacancy around the square downtown and wow, really, um, really no base of tourism, nothing to, nothing to bring people into the area and, and why? Yeah. The fair. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the thing that I love is like, like there's still the fair. There's, there's still, totally there's still, still the, the, all of the horse and rodeo related stuff that happens mm-hmm. there. The, the cowboy hats you see being worn around town. They're not being worn ironically. No, they're not. Uh, I know. Um, I've had friends from the East coast come <laughs> and they're like, what am I looking at right now? And it's like, Oh, that's, that's somebody who rides a horse. Yeah. Like they, it's not just to be cute. Um, and yet to that base, you have whatever, 275 wineries, including some of the greatest wineries in the world. And you've got Mm. a dozen really dynamic restaurants. And now all of a sudden you're starting to get some new hotels that are opening up and like it is, it's a, it's now a place to go and to, yes, you can go and visit wineries and enjoy wine, but it's also a place to shop, a place to eat, um, place to stay. It's, it's been cool to see how that's been able to, 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 to get layered on top of that, like it is actually the country and yeah. there's still that kind of cowboy piece of it that is that is very much a part of the part of the culture there totally uh what we lost your dad in 2015 16 
2018, five years ago. Oh, okay. Um, what was it like to, I mean, I'm, I, it sounds to me like your dad had been planning, you, you know, he had a succession plan obviously in mind, but what has it been like to do it without him as an advisor? So on a day-to-day basis, it's been fine. I mean, on a day-to-day basis, he had been stepping back little by little. I mean, he was, yeah. he was even at the end, I mean, he came out to the vineyard just like two or three weeks before he died. Yeah. Um, and he was coming out once or twice a week, even into his 90s. Um, so cool. It's, so cool. I mean, it, he never wanted to retire. This is what he wanted to do. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was amazing to get to be a, a part of this with him for as long as I, as long as I did. Um, but there are still things that uh, like not every day, but certainly every week that I was like, man, I wish I could ask him that. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I, I was lucky to have 15 years working with him mm-hmm. and there are a lot of things that I know what he would, I know the answer that he would give before, like <laughs> I wouldn't have even had to have asked him, but, um, still there are, there are sticky points you get to that I would love to have his mm. 70 years of experience and his, very clear-eyed judgment of what matters um, to to bounce ideas off of, mm-hmm. um, but I think I, I, I can't complain about the the hand that I was dealt. I got to work with sure. him for a really long time, and um, he left a really incredible base of of not just work that he had done, but also the team that he'd put together yes. and his. His, his network of, of people who he influenced. And mm-hmm. um, so we've, I mean, what an amazing base to, to build on. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's a delightful, the whole thing is so, um, so wonderful to watch and such a fine, you know, at the end of the day, I suppose it's all in the bottle and it's such a fantastic product too and has really lasted all this time. Um, yeah, well, it's funny to think, so I actually meant to say this at the beginning of our interview, that I will just say as a point of hilarity that I was I was very aware of Tablas Creek. I was aware of you. I was aware of the blog. Um, and But my husband, Jake, came home one night during Summer League of Ultimate Frisbee, and he said, hey, I never asked you this, but do you know a guy named Jason Haas? <laughs> He's in the, and of course, Jake's so cute. He's like, he does something in wine. And I was like, Jason Haas. Yes. How cool. So you and, are you still playing ultimate? So my knee has been, uh, I uh, tore my ACL a couple of times oh. and it's, uh, it's, I mean, the last one was two decades ago, but, mm. um, as I've gotten, I turned 50 this year. Oh like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's harder and harder on my body. I went, I think I only went to play once this summer. Yeah. Um, and Jake's got a severed Achilles. Oh, I did that too. Yeah, you should talk to him. Anyway, all you old guys, I'm, I don't mean it, but but yeah, the the body is a so I, I mean it's a I, perishable. It is. It absolutely is. So at this point, like I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to enjoy enjoy my time with my remaining cartilage as much yeah. as I can. <laughs> so I'm doing a lot more a lot more biking and a lot more hiking yes. and less of the things that I'm like, oh right. So I'm sore for four days after I do that and my knee swells up. Oh maybe right. I shouldn't be doing that so much. Good for you. Yeah. Um so no, I miss it. I still I haven't found anything that that provides that same level of of intensity and 
like joyful exhaustion. Yes, it's an addiction. I mean, Jake has very much missed it. It's almost been a year and he struggles that he can't get out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, that was just a side jaunt. <laughs> Let me ask you if it were your last day on earth and you were really wanting to celebrate everything that you had accomplished and the experiences you'd had and the people that you'd met and, and raised up, um, what would you eat as your last meal? What would you drink and who would be there? And it can be anybody. Whew. Um, that's not an easy question. Um, so it would definitely be family. Um, I mean, we, I feel like we sort of try to do a meal like this every summer. I still, our, my, my wife and, and our boys go back every summer to Vermont where I grew up, mm. where my mom, my mom still spends half the year. My sister and her family are there. Mm. And there's this incredible cellar, um, that my dad built over his 70 years of oh, wine. Cool. So mm. we always try to pick a couple of meals every summer that we sort of do in honor of him. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that's, I mean, it's obviously, it's not our, hopefully none of these are our last, uh, last yeah. meal on earth, but the idea of like being grateful for the foundation that we're given, um, mm. trying to kind of pass this forward to the next generation. I mean, it's usually involves some of the, the, either the beautiful old burgundies or the beautiful old Beaucastel or something like that, that, yeah. that my dad has accumulated over the years. Who decides what you open? now usually me <laughs> um, sometimes my mom i mean Power. she's well yes. uh or i'll i'll get them and and consult with her and consult yeah. with my sister and um but in general they're pretty happy to have me down there yeah. prowling through the cellar saying yes. "Ooh, this is going to be amazing yeah um and then i mean we have a we have a few meals that are sort of family traditional things one of them in the summer is always to do uh do a lobster Oh, lobster bake, classic. Um, which again, growing up in New England, it's it's it, it's a thing that we do every summer, usually with fresh corn out of the out of the fields there. Yeah. Newspaper, you do the newspaper on the table? No, not really. Okay. Usually, it's like plates and and crackers and sometimes bibs. But, Fun, uh, yes, yes. Um, or the other meal, and actually, I wrote this up uh, on on our blog a couple of weeks ago is we did um, racks of lamb, which my mom always mm. loves to cook and does beautifully. Mm. And then different things from the garden that's there. And that's yeah. a way to dive into red wines that are th that are amazing. And mm. it's particularly cute because one of my nephews, who is nine at this point, um, will keep eating racks of lamb. Like he'll keep eating <laughs> lamb chops to the point where he's like, are you done with that? Like I'll gnaw all of the, all of the, the fat off of that. I and, love it. And he'll, he'll finish his meal with 20 like lamb bones oh, on the plate. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Um, so something like that. Some, something surrounded by family. Yeah. Um, enjoying old wines that give us a chance to think of my dad and, mm -hmm. and uh, other parts of the family that aren't here anymore. And, mm -hmm. um, and then something that uh, that brings the whole family together, celebrates what's growing at that time of year, and mm -hmm. that's great. That's great. Can I come? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds pretty good, right? I'll just be sitting. I'll be at the kids' table. How about that? It's such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for bringing all that expertise, all that experience, and um, and for sharing it with me. Of course. Thank you, Jamie. 
that's it for another conversation on the Consumed Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Sign up for the newsletter at letsgetconsumed.com and follow along on Instagram at consumed.podcast. This podcast is edited by Chris Lambert and produced by me, Jamie Lewis. Until next time, thanks for listening.